I'm a, <clears throat> a little confused about what just happened. When Sean asked if I wanted to be recognized as an elder today, I thought he meant I needed to be recognized as one of the senior citizens of Red Sea. <laughs> Since I am one of, the, one of the dozen or so older ones there. In fact, a couple months ago, Sean uh, got an email when I had been preaching. Sean got an email about the sermon, a comment on the sermon. I don't remember what the comment was, but uh, the, the person addressed it is to the person who is preaching, not you, Sean, but the old guy in the glasses. So, if you don't know who I am, I'm the old guy in the glasses, okay? My name is Royce Curtis. I was, I was a pastor here at Red Sea. Now I'm an elder here at Red Sea. How's that? Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your generosity of grace and mercy and kindness. Lord, it is generosity. We thank you, Lord, that in Christ and through faith in Christ, we can approach you in freedom and in confidence. Lord, as we come before you and hear your word preached, it's not the man preaching, it's not the sermon, it is your word going forth. It just happens to be going forth in a verbal oral form. Lord, we ask that your word would go forth with power and with might, and it would achieve the purpose for which you intend. Lord, it's not about all the things that we're wrestling with, the distractions, the struggles, the real, but Lord, you are bigger than all of them. Your word is stronger than the resistance of our hearts and our minds and our schedules and our hectic lifestyles. Lord, we ask you to come, Holy Spirit, be with us, bless this time. We thank you in your precious and glorious name. Amen. This past fall, we began a series of sermons with an emphasis on the gospel. It was very intentional, very planned out, and this, today we're wrapping that series up. We're beginning next week's focusing, as we talked about earlier, on Advent. We talked about originally gospel forgiveness back in September. Uh, we had two, two sermons on that. And then we did gospel discipleship. And then we did what I was calling gospel family, but Sean was calling divine family. Same thing. Works out well. And uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about gospel leadership. A little bit different angle on leadership than you might expect. We're not going to be reading or preaching from Timothy or Titus. We're going to be looking at a gospel. But as we thought and talked about these series on forgiveness, on, on relationships and discipleship, relationships in the family... We wanted to cap it off. How do we sort of put it together? It's easy to messages, take in information. It's a whole different ballgame to try to plan and adjust and, and apply those things to our lives. So how is it that we can do something that would help us in that way, get through the day-to-day -day grind of life and the obligations of life and come up with a way that would help us at least a little bit to move forward with the gospel-centered relationships? How do we as individuals, how do we as families, how do we as a church called Red Sea excel in gospel-centered living? How do we excel? How do we become great at doing those things? Is it okay that we, we want to be great at being gospel-centered? I think it is okay, as we'll look at today. So as we have prayed, Sean and I prayed about this, we decided on a text that sort of caps off this series, how we can be great at gospel-centered relationships. If you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, or you can look in your flyer, if you have one, we're going to read a text. It's going to be Matthew chapter 20, 
verses 20 through 28. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Would you stand with me in honor of reading God's holy word? Matthew 20, 20 through 28. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, who is Jesus, with her sons, and kneeling before him, asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink of the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink of my cup, but to sit at my right hand and sit at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. For even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You may be seated. If we could just sum up, just look at the whole passage, you read through it, there's a gist, there's a big idea, we call it, of the passage. I would summarize it in this way. Kingdom greatness is measured by kingdom service. Kingdom greatness, greatness in God's kingdom, greatness in Christ's kingdom, is measured by uh, kingdom service. Service, serving other people that is marked by kingdom values. And that's what we're going to look. We're going to look at four different ways that we need to uh, involve ourselves and be involved in kingdom service. In fact, we're going to look at four what I call exchanges. We live a certain way in the world. We live a certain way because of our sin and our selfishness. And if we're going to be great servants of the kingdom, we need to make four exchanges that this passage points to. Four things that need to change if we are going to find the fruitfulness of the gospel-centered lives. So because the kingdom greatness is measured by by kingdom service, first of all, we must exchange a desire for position for submission to calling. We need to exchange a desire for position for a submission to a calling. Look at verse 20 and 21. Then the mother of sons of Zebedee, these are, by the way, those two sons, we know them as James and John, uh, came up to him. They got mom to do their bidding for them. It was a very high, uh, highly strategic operation. We think, we're not 100% sure, we think that actually their mother was Jesus' mother's sister after So it's their aunt. So they're pulling out no stops. They're pulling out the high cards. They're getting Jesus' aunt to pull their case for them. In our case, it's their mommy is doing the work. And she comes up, she kneels before him, and she says, she has to ask him, and he says in verse 21, "Um, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons, one will sit on my right hand, one on your left, in your kingdom. He had already announced that in his kingdom there are going to be multiple thrones, it's not, they didn't make this up. Jesus had already told them that. They preemptively decided we want to get in on the good action. So we want the right hand and the left hand. And that we don't think in kingdoms in America. We don't think about kings and thrones. 
But when you're in the king, the closer you are to a king, the more important you are, the more power you have. If you sit on the right hand or the left hand, those are the two strategic positions. So these guys are bold. They said, we don't want just to be in a throne. We want the first two spots on the throne. They were seeking a position. And Jesus, when they came with their mom, they came and Jesus asked a very simple question. What do you want? What do you want? He's asking, basically, what is it that you desire? Now, she's doing the speaking initially, but we know he's addressing them because he says it in the plural. Are you guys ready to handle this cup that I'm going to drink? We'll talk about that in a second. So he's addressing all of them. He's not there by himself. What do you want? What is it that you guys desire? And they desire the position. They desire a status. And they seek, when we seek a position, it's, it's usually because it's power, it's prestige, it's rank, it's status, it's authority. That's why we want to sit on the right hand or the left hand of a king. We seek things, we seek positions, we seek offices, and we seek job opportunities because they give us more of these kind of things. And Jesus is saying, the example of it is, what do you guys want? Our desire is for status. It's for recognition. We want the power. And uh, sometimes we, when, it, when it comes to positions, we seek positions. But, you know, sometimes, though it's not explicit in this text, it is in other texts, sometimes we sometimes avoid positions. We don't just seek them because we want the power. Sometimes we avoid them because we don't want the responsibility. We don't take on positions that we've been asked to serve in. We don't take on positions that we know we're fit and we're good for, whether it's in a job or a church or in a family situation or an event or something, because, you know what, it's just a hassle and we don't want to. We just don't want the position. Sometimes we, um, take, we think that the position's wrong. It's not our fault that we're not being productive. The position's wrong, and if we just had a different position, then we would be okay. Things would be okay. It's just a mismatch. It's not our fault that things aren't going well. And if we had a different position, it'd go a whole lot better. Jesus just wipes out all these things. Right from the bat. Everybody knew right from the start that what they wanted was power and prestige. And Jesus said, comes to him and says that it's not an issue of position. The throne thing ain't going to be happening with you guys. What it is, it's an issue of calling. Look at verse 22. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. He didn't ask them. He told them. You guys don't know what you're asking about. Are you, and then he, then he asked them a question. Are you able to drink of the cup that I'm going to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink of the cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not for me, mine to grant, but it's to those to whom it's prepared by the Father. He says to them, he says to them, you will drink. There is something you will do. You don't know this yet, guys. Jesus knew this. But there is a cup. Cup, in this context, in, this, in the Testament, uh, in the Old Testament, cup, when somebody talks about drinking of a cup, it's prophetic, it's symbolism of suffering. In the Psalms, in the Old Testament prophecies, when Jesus, at the Last Supper, took the cup and used to initiate the Lord's Supper, what does that cup represent? What does it represent? His blood poured out for us. Suffering. So he, they say, he, you guys are able to drink the cup? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, no problem. They're still having their eyes on the throne. And he says, he says to them prophetically, you guys will drink from the cup. Uh, we do know that James was uh, the first apostle, first disciple, I should say, to be martyred in the book of Acts. And John, though he was never martyred, to our knowledge, he spent most of his life in exile, uh, suffering for the gospel. So they did drink of a similar cup than, uh, than Jesus did, but not identical. And, he, um, and then he goes on and says, he says something interesting. He says, and then he deals with the whole throne thing. 
And he says, you want to sit in the left hand or right hand, but it's not mine to grant. He's the king, but it says he's not mine to grant. He says in verse 23, but it is for those from whom it has been prepared by my father. Jesus is showing here something that is, is a, the idea of calling. Jesus himself is acknowledging his call. He talks a little bit more about it later in the passage. He's saying, I am the king. He's already talked about his kingdom and being coming into his kingdom. He is a recognized king, but he's also saying, who sits in my right hand and my left hand is not for me to determine. It is for those whom the Father had prepared for him. Jesus is part of what we know in, uh, theologically as the Trinity, the Godhead. We believe there is one God. There is only one God. But that one God exists in the single essence of God. He is, he is um, he, uh, the divine nature of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, who we know is Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, are equal in, in, their, in their divine nature, are equally, internally, sustain, uh, simultaneously, and fully divine. But yet they live somehow in community. Our God lives in community as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's roles and there's responsibilities in that community. Though it's one God, he has chosen to communicate himself to us as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, okay, great, Royce. Why am I, why am I telling you this? Because Christ here is acknowledging his, his submission to his role in that Godhead. He is the king, he is the savior, he is the Messiah, but he's not the ultimate decision maker. When it comes to the relationship in the Godhead, God the Father is making plans and making decisions, and Christ himself is submitting to those decisions of the Father. He's not saying, I get to do whatever I want. He's saying, no, I get to do what the Father wants me to do. In other passages, for example, in John 8, 28 and 29, Jesus says, so Jesus said to them, when you, have, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, that's himself, Messiah, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he, said, and he who sent me is with me, and he, he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that is pleasing to him. Jesus has a role. He has a calling, even as part of the Godhead. He submits to his calling and fulfills that calling. That's the example that he is giving to us, and that's what he's talking about here. Later in verse 23, he says, the, the sit on your right hand and left hand is for the Father determined. It's not an issue of merit, guys. It's not an issue of achievement. It's not an issue of anything you can do. It's not even anything that Jesus can do. It's been determined by the Father. If the Father calls you to sit on the right and left, that's where you're going to sit. If you don't, if he hasn't called you, that's not where you're going to sit. And we as Christians have callings in our life. If there's one of the themes that you have heard at Red Sea from Sean Garman, it is the concept of calling on our life. And in Ephesians, Paul talks in Ephesians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages of sharing the gospel with people, is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it ends with, in verse chapter 10, with this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in in them. At the end of this whole description of ten verses of how we are saved by faith alone, Paul then says, we are God's workmanship and we have good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. Each, one, each individual has a calling on his life, good works, things that God has prepared for him to do. And whatever walk or stratus of life you're at, it's 
It's not a position of thrones. It's a position of calling. And then he goes on to a second thing. He says, because kingdom greatness is measured by kingdom service, we secondly need to exchange grasping for power for humbly giving. Instead of grasping for the power, which they were doing, they need to humbly give. Look at verses 24 through 27. And when, when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And it shall not be among you. But whoever should be great among you must be your servant. But whoever would be first among you must be your slave. The other, the other ten disciples were not immediately there in a conversation, but they weren't long before they found out. And what does it say that their response was? Jesus, the text is very clear. They were indignant. They were angry. They were upset. Why were they upset? Why were they angry? It doesn't take a whole lot to figure it out. Probably because, most likely because, James and John got there before they did. Right? All these guys said the same thing. When Jesus started talking about thrones, their minds all started spinning. And, G- and James and John had the initiative, and they had the gall to ask Mom to help them, too. That's, they get a little credit for that bold move. But at, at the minimum, these guys are mad. They're indignant because they got slighted at the first. There's still the thrones available, but they wanted... The reason they're angry is they wanted those two. And the two brothers got a jump on them, and that's what ticked them off. And this grasping for power, this, these, the other, all 12 of them were doing the same thing. They were grasping for power. They're trying to get control, and they wanted to gain that control and use it for their advantage. But Jesus contrasts two models of authority, two models of control in these verses. He says in verse 25, You know that the rulers of the, of the Gentiles lord it over them, and they ex- exercise authority over them. The idea here is over this is the way we think of power. We think, we think of somebody in charge, a position of power. They exercise authority over. In other words, they impose their will on other people. They push down. That's what he means there. Exercise authority over. They impose. They force upon others, whether they like it or not, what they're going to do. And Jesus doesn't take a whole lot for us to understand that kind of power, that kind of authority that somebody wants. And yet, Jesus contrasts, directly contrasts. He says in verse 26, it shall, not be, it shall not be so among you, but... And now he's going to contrast it. This is, this is the way the world wants it. This is what the 12 of you are grabbing for right now. I'm telling you guys, it's not going to work that way. And he gives them what it is going to be like. He contrasts it directly. In verse 26, he says, in the second half of that, he says, whoever is to be great among you, must be your servant, but whoever would be first among you must be your slave. They were to serve to benefit other people. The contrast there between rulers who rule over people, exercise authority, and servants and slaves, the difference there is, is quite, quite remarkable. It's quite huge. From one social stratus to the bottom of the social stratus, Jesus is showing the contrast isn't just in position. It is huge social economic difference. And he's saying that we don't serve to exercise. We don't try to grasp for power to impose our will on other people. Exact, we do the exact opposite. We serve so that it benefits other people. And sometimes, if it's our cup to have it, to the point of suffering uh, for the kingdom and suffering for those other people. He says, in servanthood, here's a mistake, is we think servants, people, don't have authority. We think servants are people who, you know, there's the guys with authority and power, and then there's the guys without it. 
That's not what a servant is. We think of slaves and servant uh, because of our history in America as the uh, the slave trade of African Americans in the 1800s, we think of that, the whipping and all that kind of stuff. There was that kind of slavery at this time, but there's other kinds of slavery which is more prominent, and that was willful slavery. That was willful servants. People, for whatever reason, there's a, a number of variety of reasons, submitted themselves to a family or somebody, and they became bond servants. They became voluntary servants for a season to serve them. And they were, we would call them stewards. We don't use that word very often in English, but they were stewards. They were managers of somebody else's property and somebody else's task that somebody gave them. Now, why am I saying all that? Because even slaves and servants have a degree of authority. The difference is the Gentiles take their authority and they push it down on people. The servant is under authority. A servant or slave is someone who yields to somebody else's authority. A servant says, I am not the one in charge, but what I'm going to do is I have a certain degree of responsibility and authority to get done whatever they want me to do. Therefore, I'm going to yield to the master's authority. I'm going to exercise his will, whether it's a human master or, in this case, Christ. Jesus said in, in, in other texts, he says that I do nothing on my own authority. He himself is an example in the Godhead, in the Trinity. He himself is an example, somebody who yielded to the Father's authority. He says, I do nothing on my own authority. In the Great Commission, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. But understand what he said. All authority in heaven and earth has been what? Given to me. He didn't have it. Now he does after the cross, after the resurrection. So Jesus himself is somebody who yields the authority to the Father, but because of that, he honors his calling and does what the Father calls him to do. Now, we talk about being servants sometimes. We should probably talk about it more. We talk about, we don't use slave language, servant language in the, in the church very often, but we probably should. It's very common in the New Testament analogy. But unfortunately, I think servanthood, I call it servanthood, serving, that kind of thing is theoretical. We don't, we don't really know what that means. What does that mean in our daily life? What does it mean to be a servant? What does it mean to serve other people, to sit under somebody else's authority? In this case, we sit under, as Christians, Christ's authority, and to serve other people. What does that look like? I mean, we don't, we don't, you know, we're not, we're not butlers, we're not maids, you know, we don't, we think of that thing. We're not that kind of stuff. Well, a number of years ago, actually, a number of decades ago, see, I'm an old guy with glasses, um, I was listening to an audio series, remember cassette audios, you know, pre, pre-podcast days, by a, by a pastor named Greg Harris, who uh, had a church in Gresham, Oregon. And when I listened to that, I didn't even know where Gresham, Oregon was. Um, this is back in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, I believe Greg Harris is still a pastor of a church in Gresham. I listened to this series, and on that series, he was talking about family, talking about seasons of life. It was an awesome series of stuff. And in there, he was talking about servanthood and how we don't get it. And he shared some advice in this, on the series that he shared it, and it has always, always stuck with me. And it's been very tangible for me. It's always helped me. As I face different life situations, different situations, I can ask myself, what would a servant do? What, what, what does it mean to serve in these contexts? So this is what Greg said. Two sentences. Give more than you have to, take less than you can. What does it mean to be a servant? What does a servant do? Give more than you have to, take less than you can. And if you think through different aspects of your life and you're saying, okay, what would it mean for me to be, 
Jesus called the greatest among you would be the servants. The greatest among you would be slaves. What would it mean for greatness to be? It would mean that I be a servant in all sorts of situations. What would that look like? Give more than you have to. Take less than you can. If you're involved in a ministry here at Red Sea, or any other church, it doesn't make a difference if it's Red Sea, children's ministry, upper room, special events, what does a servant do? Give more than you have to. Take less than you can. If you want to be a good husband or a good wife, what would a servant do? Give more than you have to. Take less than you can. If you're on a job that you really don't like, but you're stuck, what does a servant do? Give more than you have to. Take less than you can. Your finances are tight, but you know some people who have tighter finances. What does a servant do? Give more than you have to. Take less than you can. Someone needs your help, but you really don't have the time. you really got a lot going on. What does a servant do? Give more than you have to. Take less than you can. Someone needs your help, and you don't even like that person. What does a servant do? Give more than you have to. Take less than you can. You're supposed to bring food to the potluck or to your home community dinner. What do you do? What does a servant do? Give more than you have to. Take less than you can. You have uh, specific resources for a project for school, and unfortunately it's the end of the semester and everybody needs the same resources. What do you do? What does a servant do? Give more than you have to. Take less than you can. You're watching TV with other people and you can't all watch the same thing. Now the rubber's meeting the road, huh? What do you do? A servant gives more than you have to. Take less than you can. Or the one that I struggled with for a number of years, you're watching TV and you get up to get everybody ice cream. But there's not enough for everyone. What does a servant do? Give more than you have to. Take less than you can. It's really that simple. It's really that profound. Being a servant isn't complicated. It's putting others ahead of yourself, serving for their benefit and meeting their needs. Sometimes it's very little things in our lives that tip the hand of whether we really understand what it means to be a servant or not. Let me give you an example. My present job, I work for Conservative Baptist Northwest. It's an association of churches uh, in the northwest of the uh, United States. Uh, Red Sea is a part of this association. And one of the things I do is I'm a, on a team of people who do assessments of churches. We go in, they have a, either a crisis or a need, all sorts of reasons. They need some out, outside people to come in and give, uh, through a, a strict process that we have, to give an assessment so they can, we can provide them with recommendations on how to move on. I was on one of those assessments recently, with uh, another guy, and we were there for a number of days, but we went in Sunday, we went to their service to observe. So we went early because we want to observe them setting up. This place, like every other church, doesn't, the chairs don't set themselves up. Coffee doesn't make itself. Children's ministry has to be prepared. There's a lot that happens the hour or two before a, a worship service. So we know that. We went to the, to the service. So as we drive down the driveway to this a very large church, to the parking lot, we pull in, and the other guy, Mark, says to me, do you see the parking? the way they're parked? And I said, yep, they're all parked, about over a dozen cars parked right next to the front, right in front of the front entrance to the sanctuary, the main door. And he says, what does that tell you? 
Now, before I answer what I answered him, what does that tell you? These are people, children's ministry people, worship team people, set up people, whatever. I don't, they're there setting up for the service. That's what they're there for. They got there an hour, two hours before everybody else. They parked at the first available slot right near the front door. What does that tell you about them? When he asked me, what does that tell you? I said, it tells me they don't understand servanthood. Servants don't park in the best places. Servants don't take things for themselves because they can. They leave them for other people. You're saying that's not fair. That's not fair. These people are contributing to the welfare of the church. Their children's ministry, their worship team, they get there, it's cold, it's windy. They deserve to sit there. If you're a person who says you deserve that, that's entitlement. That's not being a servant. Servants don't do that. Servants give when other people don't even know they're giving. People, servants give when they don't get no recognition of, being, of giving. Servants give when they don't even know the people they're giving to. Servants give even when they help other people and serve other people who don't deserve what they get. True servants give not because of the circumstances or what they get. True servants give more than they have to, and they take less than they can. We need to move on. Because kingdom greatness is measured by kingdom service, we must ex- the third thing is we must exchange worldly models for imitating Christ. Jesus t- says in here, uh, verse, look at verse uh, 28. He says, you're not supposed to be rulers like the rulers of the Gentiles. You're supposed to be servants. The greatest among you is a servant. Then he says in verse 28, if you guys didn't get this, let me explain it to you. That's my paraphrase. He says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said, if you guys are having trouble with this concept, because it's such a different concept, my kingdom does it very differently than the world's kingdom, let me give you an object lesson. Let me give you an example. Myself. Jesus is saying, himself. Jesus is that example. If you need clarification, if we need clarification. We here today need clarification of what it means to be a servant, to be under authority and yet serve other people who don't deserve it. Christ is our example. We can, sometimes when we make it a tangible, we think about this in, like, for example, husbands. I'm going to pick on husbands for a minute. Not pick on them. I'm going to use them as an example. Paul says in, Ephes- in Ephesians chapter 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up to her. Christ is the example of how husbands are to love their wives. Sometimes it's not real tangible. What does it mean, love my wife? Of course I love my wife. She knows I love her. I told her. I tell her. Okay? Is that all it means? Let's, re- let's replace some words here, and I think it's legitimate. Let's say, husbands, serve your wives as Christ served the church and gave himself up for her. We can replace love, we can replace service, because Christ is the example of both. Or in other words, we could say, husbands, give more than you have to, take less than you can. In Jesus, all through the scripture, in a number of places in scripture, Jesus is given, explicitly his life and his death and resurrection are given as examples for us to follow. I want to just take a minute to to highlight some of these. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about not our attitude, the way we think about other people, how we treat other people, is to mirror, is to be a a reflection of what Christ thought about when he came to the earth. In Philippians chapter 2, he says this, 
Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count yourselves more significant. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's a servant. And then he says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, all of you guys in the church, which was yours in Christ Jesus. Okay, this is the way you're supposed to think. Well, how are we supposed to think, Paul? What do you, what do you mean by in Christ Jesus? Well, he goes on to explain. Who, Jesus, through, though he was in, in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has exalted him to the high, exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The point here Paul's saying is, if you want to know what it means to be a servant, to know when you're dealing with people, you're struggling with people, what is the example we turn to? We turn in our attitudes, well, how are we supposed to think? Christ is that example. In John 13, there's a famous uh, an event that happens. It's a, well, famous, it's well known. Um, little understood, but well known. It, during the Last Supper, uh, before Christ was crucified, he does this something, that, again, Jesus had this great way of saying, saying outlandish things, but he also did outlandish things. We lose some of it in our cultural context. We lose some of it because we don't understand necessarily the culture which they live. But Jesus sometimes does things like eating with tax collectors and sinners, for one, which, was, which is not socially acceptable. But here it is, he goes, they're having dinner, and he gets up, it's a feast of the Passover, and it says in John 13, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into... Let me rephrase that. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God... That's the context. Jesus, knowing, submitted to the Father, the Father had given him all things. What does he do? He gets up, takes off his outer garments, and he poured some water in a basin, and he went around and started washing the disciples' feet. He did the action of one of the lowest servants in the house. None of the other disciples, nobody else had done it. Jesus got up from the head of the table, and took off his clothes, outer garments, and washed their feet. And then when he was done, there's an exchange between him and Peter. We won't go into that. And then, and then he gets back, puts, gets done, puts on his clothes, sits back at his place. And he says this, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If, then, if I then, your teacher and your Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do, just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Jesus gives a very tangible object lesson of his life, of what it means to serve. He gets up from the head of the table, serves other people, and then tells us, even in the midst that he had all authority, he tells us, I want you to do the same things. You will be blessed when? When you do them. Not when you know it. Not when you can repeat it. Not when you can point to it. Not when you can preach sermons on it. You don't get blessings for that, according to this text. What you get blessings is getting up from the table, humbling yourself, and serving other people. 
In Corinthians, Paul talks about, we, we preached through Corinthians last year, and there's a lot of problems in the Corinthians church. There's a lot of difficulties going on. And Paul's talking through how they need to get along with each other, and they have differences with each other in their relationships. And then he says something that has always caught me, and has always, to be honest with you, kicked my butt. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God. Just, just, as, I try, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Here's Paul's servant language. I don't seek my own good. I seek their good. But then he says something. This is the part that I, I've struggled with for years. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's, that's a gutsy thing to say, isn't it? That really takes a lot, a lot of something that, that uh, uh, guts, or um, I'm lacking a word that would be appropriate in a sermon, um, that, uh, that somebody had. In NIV it says, follow my example as uh, I follow the example of Christ. If you study the life of Paul, I've been recently studying leadership in the church for a number of reasons. It's part of my job. And part of it is I am just astounded at the number of times the, in the different New Testament writers, particularly Paul lately, has been saying, you guys, you want to know what it's like to live a gospel-centered life? Look at me. Now, that's not arrogance. That's not somebody who is just pride. He doesn't want attention. He's not selling books. He's not becoming famous. He's a guy who understands the gospel. His life has been transformed. And he has enough knowledge to know. He's not perfect. He has issues. He's got struggles. He's suffering about a number of things. His life is anything but perfect. But he's willing to stand up and say, listen, you guys want to know what it means to serve other people, to get along with people you have differences with? Follow my example. As I follow the example of Christ. That is really an audacious thing to say. What would happen if we start thinking through our life situations, the situations in our life, and we started proclaiming that to people? We started being able to say, hey, I want you to imitate me as I imitate Christ. What if husbands said to their wives and children, be imitators of me as I am of Christ? What if students said to each other in their study group as the tension rises at the end of the semester maybe, you guys, you can follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Or maybe leaders of ministries, home communities, whatever the case may be, whatever, whatever walk of life it is, what would it take for us to say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ? And it is not something that is just hypothetical. That's what I want to point out here. That's why I'm belaboring this point. This is not hypothetical. It is repeated. Uh, we saw in Matthew 20, Jesus said, you need to be servants just as I've been a servant. John, uh, John 13, Jesus said, follow my example as I serve. Paul said in Philippians, you guys want to know what it is to serve other people? Follow Christ. And then he says in this passage, you guys want to know what it means to follow and serve other people? Well, I'll tell you what, follow me as I follow Christ. This isn't hypothetical. This is the standard. This is an expectation that Christ has for the church that people can stand up to the best or the worst they can do and say, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Be imitators of me. And this is intimidating. That's the part that's been kicking me. It's very intimidating. It's very hard to live to a standard that says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. But that's because the invitation is not, is not for us to have perfection. 
It's an invitation for transformation. And that leads us to the fourth and final point. Because kingdom guide greatness is measured by kingdom service, we must exchange fear for people for freedom in Christ. We must exchange fear of people for freedom in Christ. The language of service, the language of slaves, is threatening. It is. It is threatening to us. It's uncomfortable for us to say, we're going to submit to authority, and we're going to serve other people, even when they don't recognize us for doing it. We think that we're fearful because we think people are going to think we're weak. They think we're we're fearful, we're uncomfortable, because we think people are going to take advantage of us. You know what? Sometimes they might. But the primary motivation of everything we do, unfortunately, is what people think of us. We will be always living in fear and yielding to those fears. But that's not what Christ intends. He says in verse uh, 26 through 28, he says, I want you to, uh, the greatest among you will be a servant, for whoever will be the first among you will be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve, and then he finishes it. If he stopped there, we would have a little trouble. But Christ did not stop there. In verse, second half of verse 28, and to give his life for ransom for many. In that phrase, that last little phrase of the verse, Christ gives us the answer to dealing with that fear. The fear of manipulation. And that is the gospel. Christ came not just just to be an example, though he was. He did far more than that. He gave us the power, he gave us the freedom to do the things he's called us to do because he died on the cross for us. He gave his life as a ransom for many is is an expression, one of the many ways we could articulate the gospel of Christ dying for our sins. Another word for it is redemption. He redeemed us from our sins. The idea of ransom is uh, we think of it as, um, you know, a kidnapper go, we pay a ransom so we get it back. He didn't have what he got. This is not that concept. The concept is simply that we deserve judgment from God. We deserve God's judgment and wrath. God, Christ paid the price. He redeemed us. He bought, bought, bought us back. But it's where he's buying us back from is the judgment of God. Not from the devil. Not from other things. In Christ... Because of what Christ has done. Because I have been ransomed, we have been ransomed in, in Christ. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. I am being saved from the power of sin. And I will be saved from the presence of sin. This idea of the gospel being a regular part of us frees us up to live in Christ in ways that we wouldn't normally have to. In Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. One of the threatened things of, of, of the importance of the gospel isn't simply that we're saved, that we get to go to heaven, that's awesome, <laughs> eternally we'll be thankful, but it's also for now, it's a power, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, it is for power for we live our lives right now. And we, we, if we try to be servants, we try to lead in that capacity, whether it's in our families, in the church, in the workplace, whatever the case may be, We're going to have this fear of man. But there's a security in knowing that we're redeemed in Christ. And those things are who we are in Christ. In Christ, we are accepted. We don't get accepted because of what we do. We are accepted in Christ because of what he has done on our behalf. In Christ, we are secure. Nobody can take away the benefits, 
not just the salvation, but the joy and the fruit of the Spirit and the security we have in God. Nobody can take that away because it's in Christ and the Father says no one, Jesus said that no one can snatch it out of his hand. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are accepted. We are secure. We're also in Christ significant. We have roles. We have a calling in our lives. Every single one of you. It doesn't make a difference, your, your, your age, your sex, your social economic background. It doesn't make a difference. God has a calling on your life, and there's a significant calling. Some are very uh, visual, in front of people. Some, some of them, nobody will ever know that you did what you did. You served in the way you served, except for God and in the kingdom, it'll be made known. We can move forward with serving Christ. We don't have to fear man. We can have freedom because of who we are in Christ. In Christ, we are accepted, we are secure, and we are significant. In our, in the, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper each, each, um, each week, we are celebrating as we try to always point out the gospel, the ransom, the Christ's ransom. And today, when we take of the Lord's Supper, I want you to think of something. When you think of this, God has called us. He said, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever, whoever would be um, first among you must be your slave. In God's kingdom, the greatness is in kingdom service. And, it's, and he has called us to that service. But it's not based on our own merit or power. He said, even as the Son of Man... Um, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. As you go to the Lord's table today, think about the call in your life to be a servant, but not because you deserve it, or you're such a great person, or you're awesome, or you're skilled, or you're intelligent, or you're educated. But do it because you have been ransomed by Christ, by his body and blood, and he has given you that privilege to serve under his authority, to serve in his kingdom in great ways. That's what he said. It's an issue of greatness. A few closing comments, and then I'll wrap it up. First of all, we view greatness as limited to a few. In our culture, whether it's a great athlete, great business person, great anything, great musician, we limit greatness to a few people. James and John knew that greatness in their mind was only on the right and left hand of Christ. They wanted those spots. But Jesus said, greatness is not limited to a few. In fact, in this passage, he says, whoever would be great among you, whoever would be first among you, whoever, it's open-ended. It's not limited to a few. We could have a hundred people and a hundred great people in the kingdom of God, not because of their merit, because they are serving under Christ's authority in Christ's way. It's not limited to a few. Secondly, being a servant is, and you don't grow out of being a servant. You only grow more humble and more serving. You don't leave it behind. Say, oh, I did the servant thing, been there, done that, time to move on. Just like Christ doesn't say, hey, did the Savior thing, been there, done that, time to move on. We are always servants. Always under the authority of Christ, always serving Christ. As we thought this past year about, uh, this past fall, I should say, about forgiveness, Discipleship, family. And this is supposed to be, I thought, a message about leadership. Well, it was a message about leadership. It was a message about gospel leadership. Gospel greatness. Jesus said, the greatest among you will be your servants. The greatest among you, your leaders, will be the slaves. 
That is what he is called to do. The kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, kingdom greatness is measured by kingdom service. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that um, your word is true, your word is strong. But Lord, your word sometimes is biting and cutting. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to serve you and understand. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.